saying someone's not a genius. You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello everyone and welcome to another installment of the greatest moments in the history of forever. I'm Zach. And I'm Matt. And this is episode number 36, True Detective, season one, part three. The uh, epic conclusion to the three-part run. Yeah, I mean, I think we're probably going to have to have a big podcast meeting. Ooh, are we going to go out to dinner? Maybe Eaton Park. To discuss what, some of our things that we want to do for this upcoming horror month. Yeah. We don't... Untitled For so lack far. of a better title, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, you've heard us mention it in the last couple episodes. We, we're going to have a special October-themed month of the podcast coming up starting with the very next episode after this one. All right. But yeah, um, because... I think we have a lot to learn from this three-part series that we did. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if we'll ever do a three-part series on anything ever again. Are we ever going to learn what it is that we need to learn? Well, the one thing I learned is three episodes on one subject might be too much oh. for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, do you think like people are still interested in what we have to say about True Detective at this point. I don't know that they're interested, but I don't know that that has to do with how many episodes on any given subject we do. Yeah, fuck the listeners. Like, you know, if you don't like it, go fuck yourselves. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. What kind of attitude do you have? Uh, we're joking. We love our listeners, all three of them. <laughs> yeah, so... What's so great about you, though, the listener? Yeah, where's your podcast yeah. of the year awards? No kidding. <laughs> Who'd you ever beat? Yeah. As we were talking about earlier today, like the fact that only 20 of our ep- of our episodes show up in our iTunes podcast feed is the most depressing thing going in my life right now. Yeah, it's hard to really I mean, I know that, past that. I know for those of you who have been with us since the beginning, that might not make any sense. In fact, it probably doesn't make any sense to anyone, but <laughs> 
part of the appeal was just to have that list of episodes and the randomness of our topics. Yeah. And just our wide, eclectic collection. The people that would be like, what is this? Silence of the Lambs and She's the Man audio commentary? And Bug Juice and three-part series on True Detective. <laughs> There's a little something there for everybody. I don't know what I- there is to complain about. Basically, we wanted to do a podcast that catered only to me and you. Yeah. And that was it. No (laughs) one else. Worked out pretty perfectly. (laughs) We're the only people that enjoy it. We might have like a fan or two out there. But anyway, like if you're new to the show and you're curious about all of our episodes, just go to greatestmoments.podbean.com and you can still listen to all 36 and you can still subscribe on iTunes to get all of the, the latest 20. And, uh, you know, you can also uh, rate and review there, which we, you know, have a ton of ratings. <laughs> <laughs> and a ton of Twitter followers at yeah. Greatest Pod. Things really uh, picking up. It's a real slow build. It's a, really easy to keep it going with all the uh, positive reinforcement we're getting. <laughs> <sighs> So, anyway, uh, (laughs) you know, I don't really care how many people listen. I'm really excited about this stuff we're going to do in October. It's going to be some top-notch work. a big month for us, and I think this (laughs) one... Personally. Yeah. I think this one's really going to, you know, get the juices flowing for people. I've done a lot of my best work. In October, in my life. (laughs) Truth be told, though, the first episode will probably come out before October, but whatever. Yeah. Just deal with it. Um, So anyway, on to True Detective. Um, We've thrown a lot at you so far. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of gone over. A lot of tidbits. A lot of um, different things. One thing that we've kind of touched on a little bit, though, so far is the effect that the investigation into the murder of Dora Lang and, you know, the subsequent sprawl, as they call it, of that investigation uh, has been the impact on uh, Marty, uh, played by Woody Harrelson, just to recap, uh, (laughs) the effect on Marty's family, uh, his home life. We've seen, you know, a lot of marital problems between himself and Maggie, played by Michelle Monaghan. Marty uh, really in over his head with this whole family business. Yeah, he had a couple of affairs that we've covered so far. Um, The second one leads um, Maggie to have sex with Cole. Ugh. And that pretty much is the final nail in the coffin of their marriage, which we kind of have pretty much figured out through the 2012 interviews. Yeah. Marty is now divorced. Um, But one of the interesting things that they they did on the show was kind of this storyline with Marty's oldest daughter, Audrey, that kind of slowly plays out through some of the episodes um during the 95 investigation both of his daughters are pretty young and it starts with a lot of weird sexual stuff going on in audrey's life that you know feels icky and inappropriate but it's stuff that she's doing 
and her parents kind of seem like ill-equipped to handle this. Yeah, I mean, rightfully so. I don't know what the solution is there for a young kid who's making su- sexually suggestive drawings and yeah, um, <clears throat> and you know we're gonna talk about some of the crazy uh, fan theories. Well, we're just gonna touch on a few of them later in the show, but a lot of them, I think. And I don't know if I wrote down any of these particular other than that deal with this stuff directly. But, uh, you know, there's a scene early on with his two daughters playing with some dolls. And, like, they have a naked doll that's like a Barbie or something. And it's surrounded by that pentagram of men, like the five men around her. Which is a symbol that kind of plays out throughout, like, five around one woman usually or whatever like even those uh metal figures that rust car like cuts out making of, out of beer, beer cans bo- beer yeah. cans yeah that he makes five standing around one laying or whatever oh. and like a lot of the pictures and different weird stuff that is shown throughout like kind of has the same look to it and it's never really clear why his daughters are playing with their dolls in that Right, Way. and I mean, it's one of the things that people jumped on to mean something within the context of the main storyline, which it really doesn't. No, not directly. Um, and then, you know, as you alluded to, she makes a lot of weird drawings and kind of gets in trouble at school for them. They kind of are crudely drawn Yeah, people engaged in sexual acts. But, like, the weirdest part is... They were like... Don't go to art school. <laughs> well, she does become an artist, though, as we find out. <laughs> yeah. But the weirdest is that there's the one with the man, and you can tell by his ridiculously drawn Member. penis. <laughs> uh, he's wearing like a mask, and the woman with her breasts drawn and everything is kind of seems to be bound or something. Yeah, in it's one of the drawings. I, it's not just naked people, which I think would be pretty normal yeah for a child to sometimes do stuff like that but right you wouldn't look at it and be like this is insane or i mean what would inspire the mask in the bound woman drawing exactly and i don't think it's not i mean obviously maggie's reaction to it is that this she's she's clearly disturbed by it i think more so than if it would have just been naked people but they don't they don't seem to question it very far and for whatever and i mean she'd be like what where did you get this idea she's like uh mtv's undressed (laughs) (laughs) well marty never seems to put it together with anything with the case now he when he finds the dolls granted the girls are are pretty young but he does stare at them and like kind of have a look on his face but i mean right he never seems to like question it directly and i mean it definitely led to a lot of fan speculation that like his daughter had been abused in some way or that marty was a the real killer or that uh, the grandparents who are only in it for about five minutes at most are somehow involved uh, maggie's yeah. parents which it, it's weird how believable some of that stuff seemed before right. the show ended and then when you look back on it you're like why did anyone think that they're not even in the show barely yeah it kind of just, you know, sits there and you can kind of tell that, you know, Audrey might be like a little bit disturbed, but like, 
I kind of think it plays more into something we were talking about in part one with like the the effect of the case on the overall psychosphere or the overall like mood and atmosphere of the of the world because of this kind of thing that this stuff just seeps into the subconscious you know kids might hear little snippets here and there on the news or their friends at school talking about it because they're you know someone at school's parents were weren't very careful with talking about it in front of them or right in earshot and then it just kind of bleeds into this thing and it has a negative effect on you know people in the area that you know that it's not even evident to them where it's coming from it just kind of like bleeds into the consciousness or whatever yeah and this you know for whatever reason it doesn't seem to affect marty's younger daughter who i don't remember her name but um she seems relatively normal throughout the entire show's run but the you know the older one for whatever reason it kind of like bleeds into that and um in the 2002 flashbacks (laughs) She kind of turns into this hot topic, yeah, uh, goth mall kid, right? Look, and she kind of, you know, gets herself. I mean, I don't really know what you would say. I mean, I don't. Clearly, there was a crime being committed, so I don't really want to like blame the victim here. But I mean, I think she's acting in a way that's like wild and she ends up in a situation with two much older guys and oh are they supposed to be a lot older yeah because okay. statutory rape is definitely mentioned thrown out there she's okay. only supposed to be i think like 14 or oh, something okay. at the yeah. time but she's you know caught having sex with two guys in the back of a truck are the dudes supposed to be in high school though you th- i think they said they were like 19 and 20 oh, or wow, something like yeah. that jesus uh yeah now this a strange uh move the whole i mean it's weird to talk about with the ages that you just explained but this whole like double team situation i mean not a lot of high schoolers i feel like have that uh in on their resume yeah it's that's it definitely adds to the kind of ickiness of it because you're not really sure like they don't get you know you know obviously they don't get into like ridiculous amount of detail and and you certainly don't see this scene you just see you know marty bringing her back to the house after like you know the cops that broke it up or whatever years later uh what's audrey yeah audrey would be at a uh hockey game with Ben Affleck and he would eventually get her to confess this story. <laughs> yeah, I mean this is like finger cuffs and Jays. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um yeah, like you're not so I mean, you know, you're not really sure what the dynamic was. Like what it, what was exactly happening, who knows. But yeah. um clearly she's acting out having some sort of a rough time with something and of course marty doesn't know how to handle it ends up like slapping her (laughs) (laughs) to the horror of uh maggie Maggie, yeah it he lashes out in the same way that he lashed out with lisa because i think there's a part of him probably subconsciously that like you know knows it's his fault yeah i mean understands his own hypocrisy played like a huge part in this 
and he doesn't really know how to handle it. Not that a lot of people would know how to necessarily handle that situation. It's a pretty uh yeah, tricky one. So weird talk to have at uh dinner. Yeah. Um and then you know, and it kind of goes back to some of the things that we talked about Marty, I probably in part 1 or something where his reaction to it is so strange like he goes to the jail and like beats up the two dudes but right. like he can't even really be that guy because then you know he's throwing up afterwards yeah. in the parking lot like he sees himself in this way and tries to act in this certain way but like he can't even live up to that like that caveman that he wants to be yeah, kind of thing like barbarian he's, he's like he's i think you know he's just like so conflicted about like his you know his own feelings and his own choices in his life that you know he can't even do something yeah i mean those dudes definitely do take quite the beating from him though <laughs> <laughs> we puts on gloves it's, yeah. it's so strange yeah. um you know and then it kind of this is like um pre Marty Marty's like second known affair. I mean this is kind of like happening around the same time period in right. like 02 but like it, this situation with his daughter of course just like increases like the tension between him and the rest of the family which kind of, you know, will eventually build to an explosion. Right. And so, you know, this case I think the reason we see all this stuff with a daughter ultimately is just to show that like the kind of deep effects that the investigation has had, you know, beyond just the normal, you know, effect on just the two cops, right. but like their lives beyond it. Um, because as we've talked about, you know, already in two, both parts, you know, the effects on Cole are pretty obvious. <laughs> Dramatic. Too, where in 2012, he almost seems to be living the philosophy of the people that they killed in the shootout. Like he's saying the same thing that Reggie Ledoux was saying. He just seems like a creep. He, we didn't point this out in part two, but when Ledoux is handcuffed before Marty shoots him, he says that, that time is a flat circle line. And (laughs) Cole's like reaction to it is like, what the fuck is, is that fucking Nietzsche? He's like, shut the fuck up. up, And then here, you know, Seventeen years later, he's saying time is a flat circle. He's yeah. basically adopted the things they were saying, right? And he's just become this like weirdo outcast from society, borderline, almost psychopath at this point. Uh, in fact, would later t- go on to explain to Marty that he considered the fact that he was crazy <laughs> and decided against it. But <laughs> yeah, um, so now. Uh, picking up where we left off, we're in the present. Um, Rust and Marty go and get those drinks. Absolutely. And Marty, or sorry, Rust lays this all on Marty. You know, we have unfinished business from 95. Marty doesn't really want to believe it. It seems to me that but Marty Marty's more in the camp of like, he doesn't, it's not that he doesn't believe it. He doesn't want to believe it. Right. But he can't bring himself to just, flat out be like all right i no i don't want to hear this shit like he says stuff but he keeps sticking around well he knows deep down he knows that 
he knows how smart Rust is. He knows that Rust is smarter than him. He knows that Rust might be a little bit crazy, but I think he he knows that he's a good man and that he wouldn't be saying this if it wasn't with, true. If there wasn't or he didn't a reason. It, if yeah. he he understands that Rust believes this to be true, and if Rust believes this to be true, then there must be something to it. Right. But he still he doesn't want to face that. I mean he. Uh, recount. I think this is kind of where he recounts why he got out of the force. I, oh that yeah, might come a little bit later. It's kind of like a Rorschach story <laughs> from uh, Watchmen. Yeah, he had, you know some meth head or something microwave their baby. Ugh. God. <laughs> and so he doesn't want to necessarily return. Which yeah, to so that I, world. I guess we should explain that he's since started his own. Uh, private investigative yeah. uh, service seemingly may have had other employees at a, at a time, <laughs> but doesn't appear to now. It doesn't seem to be going super great. Right. But the thing that, the line that gets Marty to turn around as he's leaving is Cole telling him that they have a debt. And, you know, I think, or that, he, that specifically Marty has a debt. And, I, I you know... I would assume that this is in reference to Marty shooting Ledoux before they could question him, before right. they had a chance to, to make sure. Because ultimately, you know, the end result of their little raid in 95 was that they kind of... Didn't get any answers. Yeah, they they followed the case to that point and then through their own hands, you know killed the pipeline like they stopped the trail there they couldn't go any farther you know but as we talked about in part two marty's still hearing about this man with the scars and like ledoux and the other guy didn't really have the facial scars no it it, neither of them really fit that original description and they were both big guys but not quite what they were hearing right to that point um so Rust at least convinces him to go to this storage unit. <laughs> oh, yes. Which, I mean, throughout this show, pretty great like set design. I would say pretty consistently in just about every scene. But this one is so over the top, This when he brings him into this storage shed. And I know it's supposed to be like bleak and Cole's like this obsessed lunatic. But it literally says the word scars on the wall there's like a skull like a like a bolt like a a cow or a bull like skull just sitting there like what does that have to do with anything yeah for me everything was fine except for like the giant words paint like spray painted onto the wall well what would be the purpose of him having an animal skull just decoration (laughs) (laughs) just to make the storage unit a little homey yeah absolutely he's got one of those Blair Witch things like hanging up (laughs) He's got maps and pictures and all kinds of shit all over the wall. It's basically, you know, like a kind of a generic, like, um, personal obsession investigation looking room that you see in movies and TV. Right. Um, and he tells this story about how he, he tracked down a former student of, you know, one of these Tuttle schools, um, and this student remember like remembered these naps that they took and how yeah this is kind of like a 
he would wake up and there would be men in the Nightmare room. on Elm Street type situation. Yeah, it seemed like what they were implying was that the kids were like drugged and they would take these naps and then the men would come in the room and they would have animal masks on and do things to them. Um, and, you know, Rust asked if there was a scarred man and the guy seems to remember, yes, there was and he didn't wear a mask and... He talks about another student that he remembers talking. He remembers talking to one other student about it, a girl. He couldn't remember her name, and Rust suggests that Marie Marie Font, well, that it was Marie Fontenot, and the guy seems to think, yeah, that might have been it, because for since almost the beginning of this, once they started branching it out beyond just the murder of Dora Lang, Rust has been adamant that the Marie Fontenot disappearance is connected. I think Marty wasn't always so sure. The superiors definitely didn't really want to hear about any links to anything else. Yeah. And then, you know, Rust admits that, yes, he was the one that broke into Billy Lee Tuttle's homes and broke into his safes. When Um, they show the uh, flashback to that, it is like, all right, (laughs) this dude does seem a little over the top in his... Yeah, I mean, dressed up like a cat burglar and <laughs> with like the black uh, beanie on and like uh, the flashlight in his mouth. <laughs> it's just like okay. just like ravaging through this guy's like desk and office. And you know, he found he shows uh, Marty what he found, which were like photos of children. Um, the ones we see are like they're blindfolded with antlers and. You know, pretty horrifying. You know, you have to kind of assume that there were other pictures that were worse. Right. Um, and then he shows uh, Marty a video. We only see, like, a little bit of the video. But there's, it's still pretty disturbing. There's a girl blindfolded, um, surrounded by Cole men turns masks. his back when he, sh- when he has Marty watch it. Yeah. Uh, Marty's reaction to it, not good (laughs) (laughs) not subtle either um it's kind of like a darth vader at the end of uh, revenge of the sith when he finds out he killed padme (laughs) (laughs) you have to assume that they just murdered the girl on the video who knows what all they may have been doing but rust is you know pretty sure that it's marie fontenot on the video and marty who has been told by the 2012 det- detectives Papania and Gilbro, you know, that Tuttle kind of died under mysterious circumstances, and and they kind of suspected uh, Cole did it. So he kind of needs to know, you know, what he's getting himself into. So he asks Rust if he killed Tuttle, and he says that he didn't, but that he thinks that it was the uh, people in the group who got to him after they found out what was missing from the safe. Yeah, yeah. Which seems pretty logical. Um, and so at this point, you know, Marty has Marty's really all no in. choice yeah, but to in. be all in, yeah. Um, so they track down, you know, through some regular detective work. I mean, neither of them are active police at this point, but, you know, they still have their connections and whatnot. So they track down Reggie Ledoux's cousin and... um. They talk to him, and he remembers meeting a guy with the scars on his face one time and how he, like, freaked him out. 
So this kind of this scene really just kind of serves as like further evidence that this man exists and that he is separate from Reggie Ledoux. Right. Not a whole lot is made of that other guy that was with Ledoux. They don't really ever mention yeah. him as any potential. Someone tells a story of like, was that the uh, Reggie Ledoux's cousin that tells the story about going hunting with them or whatever? Yes. And yeah, he references the three dudes being there. Yeah, and you know that was the only time he ever saw him, but he never forgot him because he was scary. He freaked him out. He was staring at him all the time. And then they find um, Billy Lee Tuttle's father's retired housekeeper. Now, Billy Lee Tuttle's father's name was Sam. Um, he had a longtime housekeeper. Um, I don't remember what her name was, but no, they s- scary old lady. <laughs> They find her, um, and they kind of find out that uh, Sam had lots of illegitimate children. And it turns out that this mystery, scar-faced man's uh, f- father was one of those illegitimate children. So he's part of the Tuttle And was a cop, tree. right? The father of the... Possibly. I don't, okay. I don't remember. But... Um, she said it was like another family that was involved There's, or something. McCullough's, something like that. Uh, you're talking about their last name? It was yeah. uh, Childress. Oh. But it was his own father that gave him the scars by like burning his face. So obviously, you know, uh, anybody who knows anything about serial killers, there's usually some sort or of Or good parents. Story there. <laughs> yeah. As to why they became so fucked up. Um, so now the we've waited, you know, six plus episodes at this point to finally get that connection between this monster that we don't know and how does this connect to the Tuttles who are politicians, religious figures, ministers, you know, rich, powerful people in the state of Louisiana. And this is the connection is that it's all part of the same fractured family tree. Right. When Cole shows the housekeeper the stick figures, that's when shit gets real. (laughs) She says, uh, you know Carcosa? And she mentions he who eats time. And then in a particularly horrifying sequence, she just keeps saying, rejoice, death is not the end, rejoice. And it's very yeah. unsettling. No kidding. And her granddaughter makes them leave. Yeah, her granddaughter's give... like, what did you do to her? <laughs> and then she demands money. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, they they more or less got what they needed. I mean, they they got the connection to the Tuttles. They still, you know, aren't exactly sure how to find these people. But it seems, you know, at the very least, uh, Cole was probably already convinced, but... I think it goes a long way in confirming to Hart that they're not, you know, chasing something that doesn't exist. Right. That this guy's still out there. So then, uh, in kind of like, you know, more of a follow-up with the Marie Fontenot thing, they, you know, just by going through the old uh, police records, like the original missing persons report from Marie Fontenot, they they tracked down this um, guy, this former cop that 
they used to work with, um, you know, in some of the early uh, 95 flashbacks he's yeah, around. Um, he's kind of a prick. His name is Steve Garisi. You might recognize the actor from Weeds or Orange is the New Black. <laughs> I don't know his name. But um, he's got like a whole weird thing going on where he's like, I don't know, I guess rich. He seems richer than he should be for, although he speaks about this car that he has that was impounded from drug dealers or something, but he was just driving it. Yeah, he somehow got a Maserati. He has a boat. Yeah. He's golfing at like... uh, Uppity country clubs. Big country club type situation, which was a kind of a funny scene because he's got like that... Uh, ridiculous gun like on a holster on oh, his yeah. belt. It's right. just like an absurd gun yeah. to have on a golf course. <laughs> um, South is weird. So, you know, Hart, who was buddy-buddy with everybody, you know, kind of tries to reconnect with them and hang out with them and try to get some information about the Marie Fontenot thing. Garisi kind of like gives like the, you know, the same lines that were put into the original file, which was, you know, they found, they f- figured that she went off with her birth father. Uh, the mother kind of backed away from the claim and didn't really follow up. And then <laughs> that was good enough for them. And that yeah. was kind of the end. Well, of it. Yeah. Okay. Shut the book. <laughs> Case closed. And so, you know, that the golf outing doesn't go particularly well as far as information gathering. So they meet up again to go fishing on a boat or something and yeah. I think they're on a boat. Yeah, they're on a boat. They have and then, yeah, a little more forceful plan this time to get information. I, I don't understand how Rust is on the boat though the whole time. Like the, Well, they or were they not on the boat when Rust was there? No. Uh Who's Actually, boat was it's there? not that guy's boat. They just take that boat. Oh. I think they like stole it from like the marina or something. Okay. I think I, yeah, I think they say that it's like, "Oh yeah, it's not our boat." Conveniently, though, it had a TV with a VCR on it. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they had to check to make sure they got that boat. Because um, they basically hold Greasy at gunpoint to get information. They show him this video, the Marie Fontenot video, which he... I'm not even sure why they even need to show it to him, but they... He reacts... Yeah, he's ho- like, BFD. <laughs> well, no, he... No, I know. He's horrified by it. Yeah, which gives me. I I think this is important because it's they want you to know that he's like a dirty cop and kind of a shitty guy, but he's not in on right this other shit, this more horrible shit. But he's more guilty of negligence. Yeah, and it's showing how that kind of mentality is in a way an accomplice, you know, even an unknowing accomplice to this right. kind of behavior. Like he kind of ends up copying to that thing we talked to talked about in the last episode where he's just like, look, I was a young cop. I just did what I was told. Like he kind of even tries to spin it. Like he did think that it was weird, but yeah, his chief at the time said to like signed off on closing it or whatever and said to drop it. And he's, you know, cites chain of command. And, you know, that's all there is to it. Right. But, you know, I think it's showing how that kind of stuff can 
you know, foster an environment where these big conspiracies that we talked about in part two can exist is like these people like not taking that extra step, not asking that additional question, not, you know, thinking something's wrong or weird or whatever. Right. And how that allows this to happen. And what bit of information do they get from him? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I remember this whole conversation. I I guess, I don't know. I can't remember what it is specifically, but they get something from him. But it's not really, it's not like a location on the killer or anything. No, the only thing that really jumped out at me was like, they were still just trying to find out who all was like involved and who decided, you know, that they weren't going to follow up on or something. I don't know. There may have been like somewhat of a connection to like the chief at the time. I don't know because yeah, I did think there was something with the cop, like not him, but his superior. (sighs) Well, that's for a show that does more research to talk about though. (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) There's a lot of moving pieces. Yes. Um, uh, but after they're done with them, it's like, it is funny because, you know, they've just, yeah, they were underhanded and, you know, held them at gunpoint, but they did show them this horrifying footage and I mean, kind of showed what they were after. And it's like, as soon as they don't have the gun on him anymore, he's immediately spinning to like, you're going to regret this. You're going down for this. And of course, you know, they have some plan in which they're ready. Uh, the plan involves russ manager at the bar that he works at having a sniper <laughs> rifle pointed i mean this is probably like one of the most cartoony parts of the yeah, whole he show just shoots up the maserati yeah to show that he's real and then we see gilbro and papania they're looking for a church that russ has mentioned in one of these interviews and they get lost out in the bayou and they stop and ask a man on a lawnmower uh for directions now the big clue here obviously is we've seen the same guy before right so the viewer right away is like well wait a minute why did they use the same guy that seems strange although it's like if you're watching it week to week i would think it would be very hard to remember this dude oh i remembered he was in what episode two yeah it was like two or three probably he was cutting the grass at a tuttle school that had been closed down Worked for the county. He talks to Cole briefly, and then Cole gets called back to the car because they found a lead on Ledoux. This time, he's just cutting the grass. He works for the parish somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I don't Some know field. Yeah, it doesn't even. It's not he's even not even getting paid. It's is. just a hobby. And so, yeah, I recognized him as soon as he was back on because I, I just. You thought something was up. The first time you saw him. Yeah, I don't know if I thought that. I but don't remember if I. I I do feel like I was like, oh, yeah, this guy was on it before, but it definitely I don't think I remembered his interaction with Cole specifically. It definitely dawned on me almost immediately. I was like, oh, well, this is the guy. Oh, yeah. Because then like, well, yeah, then they do show this like the scars on his face, which are not very noticeable. It does seem like they could have gone further with that because every character that has ever seen this person has mentioned it. And it's like. Yeah, they're there, but like, I don't know that I would have thought of that. No, I would have just been like, he, yeah, he's like some giant fat slob. <laughs> yeah, he kind of, I because they kind of kind of like greasy hair, acne scars. Seems like he else. like eats a lot of mayonnaise. You can kind of see it like coming out in his hair. 
And so they ask for directions, and he tells them where to go. And the one guy kind of just makes a comment of like, "Oh, you sure know your way around, or whatever." And he starts launching into something about his family being. And then they're like, "All right, uh, see yeah, ya. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> and drive away." Yeah. And then he keeps talking, and then they show the scars closely, and you're like, "Oh shit, this is the guy." Right. Because I think when Cole saw him before, couple of bad a, hunch cops driving by. <laughs> when Cole saw him before, he had a beard. Yeah. And the scars weren't really visible. Right. So now we know that this is the man they're looking for and that he is a lawnmower guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's a uh, groundskeeper. Yes. Works for the parish. So the clue that finally yeah. takes them to this Heart's guy. Heart's big moment. Uh, his name being Errol Childress is kind of ridiculous in a way. And... Out of character, really, for Hart. Yeah. He never really well, seems yeah. to come up with anything. Right. And then just I guess magically, the point, yeah. you know, thinks of this. I'm not even, to be they honest. You have a picture of Marie Fontenot's house. Is that whose house it is? <sighs> I'm not? not even sure that it's Marie Fontenot's house. It's one of the houses from one of the files. Because right. this is a person that survived. Yeah. Is the one that describes... Oh, that's true. The green-eared spaghetti that's true. man. Yeah. Um, which I don't know where. The, what the spaghetti man is that? The scars? I don't know what that's supposed to mean. But uh, I don't know. I thought it was the hair, but I don't really know. Yeah, I don't know. So in one of the files somewhere, there's a picture of a house that looks like the green paint on it is looks fairly fresh. They think maybe the the green ears was paint on his ears, which what kind of a house painter? Gets I know. Paint which Cole's like, oh my god, Marty, I could kiss you. You're a genius. He should have just been like, you think she was describing a person with green paint on their ears? You idiot! And like disregarded immediately. So they're able to you know track down the person who had this house um, through a lot of you know miracles they're able to right. know, find this person she's able to remember that yes the house was painted they're able to figure out the company it was called Childress and sons right and through tax records for the, like a business license and everything they're able to find an address and they're like let's cruise out there yeah i mean you know not really a hundred percent sure if this is this is the address obviously of errol Childress's father who started this house painting business or right. whatever so let's talk a little bit about our man here er- errol childress now that we know he's the guy they're looking for is he even really the yellow king i don't or know is the yellow king not a real thing it doesn't seem like on the hierarchy of the cult he would be the yellow king you know yeah. what i mean if i kind of agree with that i think if the Yellow King is an actual person, which I'm not 100% sure that he is. Right. I don't necessarily think it would be him, but at the same time, maybe it is. Yeah, he's like a a low-level guy in the cult, it seems like, but he kind of you know does a lot of little side projects on his own, it seems like. Yeah, because... We're not really sure but what all this... It doesn't seem like he's someone that would be like uh, respected or worshipped by other people that, at these rituals, you know what I mean? Yeah, 
I don't I don't know if it's a, really about like respect and worship though. I I taking only what like the housekeeper said when she said like you know Carcosa and but like it that only clicking in when Russ shows her the pictures of those lattice stick work things. Right, right. And not when he brings up someone with scars makes me think that this goes farther back. Yeah. She just remembers him as a kid running right, around right. with scars on his face. Yes. She can remember how he got the scars on his face. Yeah. She doesn't react to that as anything in particular, but she reacts to this other stuff and launches into this whole weird shit, like where she starts saying crazy stuff that is familiar because of Dora Lang's diary, because of uh, people in jail Ledoux and have said stuff, and Ledoux. And so. I'm thinking the Yellow King is not a person. Yeah. Or, the, you know, the people in this cult probably think it's a real thing or whatever. But, you know, not an actual human being. It's some sort of god or ancient Cthulhu yeah. being or right. so, something that they're worshipping or yeah. something. And, you know, he is just another spoke in the wheel. But, like... But he does seem to be the spoke in the wheel that gets his hands most dirty. Yes, he's taken he's taken to killing a lot more readily than others. And I'm wondering if I'm wondering if the Dora Lang and possibly, you know, the two thousand twelve murder that they find that kind of reopens this case in a way, if that was which do they get into that at all, the two thousand twelve case? Not much. I mean they said they show her name in like the file at one point, but it's just another kind of killing that resembles it. Um, She's strung up. I think it's like off the side of a bridge or something. She's hanging in a weird way. Anything that happens around her death, like work into the clues that lead them to. No. Okay. I don't think so. Right. But like, I'm wondering if those kind of things were Childress or, you know, Errol Childress. Like, I don't want to just limit it to his last name acting you know, on his own others. yeah because even the Dora Lang thing because that and like Rust may even say this at one point so I don't want to act like I'm just saying this on my own theory or anything but like he kind of speculates that like that killing looked familiar right to Billy Lee Tuttle and that's why he rushes in with the task force at the beginning because they know right away who it is it looks like stuff that they were they've been doing that they keep secret uh-huh. because their thing is the Marie Fontenot thing which is they never found Marie Fontenot right she was just a missing person their whole thing was a secret in the woods with masks yeah no one's identity was known they don't broadcast what they're doing yeah but they've got freaked out because Childress is connected to that and may have very well been a part of that too and they see him acting out on his own and they recognize this and they're like, Oh shit, we gotta Yeah, we gotta One wonders though, why if this group is so quick to kill Billy Lee Tuttle, right. a powerful man who can help them in a lot of ways, just because some shit gets stolen from his house which, yeah, true, would expose everything so they kill him. Yeah. If they're willing to kill him, why wouldn't they be willing to kill this? low-life guy I know, who's seems potentially strange. exposing everybody. Right. Unless... 
they're scared of him. <laughs> well, no, no, I, would I think more. He is willing, like we talked about in part two. He's will. He's the one that they rely on for yeah. the, a lot of this dirty work because, like, these people are fucked they're up. They're having but, like, a hard time recruiting a new person to kidnap children for them. Yes, he's willing to do the things that they are afraid to do. Right. They, they can't do that stuff themselves. They'd, they'd rather just meet in the woods with their mask than have to be the one that gets the child. Yeah, you know well, what I mean? Like, I don't, yeah. Which, I mean, it seems like they had to have been out of business a little bit for a while because it's like it. They, these schools are like shut down now. How was this dude discreetly doing this? He's such a big mess of a person. Well, who knows? Like, we don't know. We don't know the details of their operation. Yeah, really. a lot. I think like a lot of people going into the last episode were expecting everything to be explained and revealed. Oh yeah, and you know, almost nothing is right. I was like, once everything was revealed that it was this big conspiracy with like all these different people involved. I was like so hooked on that. And the first time I watched it and like the end just became about this one dude, I was really disappointed by that. But watching it through the second time, it definitely makes like more sense for the story and like with the world that they've constructed that they would only be able to get this dude. Yeah. I mean, I think um, there was definitely some disappointment in the limited scope of the last episode. Well, they kind of set it up right before they go out there, though, that, you know, Cole does this thing where he gives, like, these tapes and records of everything to his uh, bar manager friend, like, and gives him instructions, like, this goes to the FBI, this goes to the media, like, and it's, like, all these different sets, and it makes it seem like, oh, they are going to expose all these other people. And some of that stuff does get leaked to the media later, but it's kind of immediately, like, shunned away. <laughs> yeah. But I think, like, when he... It, during that scene, when he lays that stuff out, I was like, oh, shit. They, they, they are going to, like, get all these... Expose all these people. So... But then they... You know, that's right before they leave to go out to this uh, manor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I... Well, they kind of address it later with... Um marty kind of just saying like well we got our guy or whatever yeah because yeah. like they kind of just know like we're not gonna get all of them but we right. got our guy or whatever or, you know so you know errol childress's house is kind of just like a hoarder's paradise oh yeah just stuff piled <laughs> everywhere um <laughs> the city has issued an ultimatum <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's kind of uh, you know, I saw some places online kind of disappointed with the last episode, and they kind of talk about how Errol Childress himself and his surroundings and everything he does is it kind of just falls into like the generic like evil monster serial killer at the end of the yeah, line. And it's, it's still pretty of, creepy though. Yeah, uh, I mean, it kind of just speaking to what you it's, said, like it kind of he just becomes like. It becomes like a very normal, right, thing of like, well, this is the bad guy that we have to get, and it's no longer this giant sprawling thing. I but, will say though, the whole action sequence that uh, follows during this is pretty exciting and pretty tense, and it's shot really cool. And just like the way it's like, as soon as they pull up to the place, not knowing what to expect, like the way that uh, Cole sells it is like great. He like 
is like they're getting out of the car and he's immediately just like this is the place like <laughs> yeah he tastes the aluminum and ash again um which calls back to the first time they are at the murder scene of Dora Lang um kind of just speaking to like the evil in the air um now this house not particularly nice but they seem to do all right with their uh, painting business because they seemingly own quite a bit of land. Yeah, um, you know, probably been in the family though. That's a long true. Time. Yeah, the children's. Um, so right away we see, you know, some generic. It's kind of like Crimson Peak. Uh, animal abuse. Um, we see Errol engaged in some sort of bizarre sexual relationship with his half-retarded half-sister. Yeah. Um, He kind of alternates between two accents, his normal voice, presumably, which is like this thick, heavy, slow southern drawl, and then like this soft, borderline effeminate British accent. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Which I think Pizzolatto addressed somewhere in some interview as like he imagined i i i think you know that this guy learned how to speak from watching old movies or something i don't know it was just some kind of weird explanation in his head where he would get this from but it kind of is um you know pretty blatant like oh multiple personality type situation um and then the most disturbing thing is he has his father chained to a bed in a shed in the yard it's and it's not even a bed really it's just the like the metal frame and i saw somewhere that it was referring to it as his father's corpse but i'm pretty sure he was alive was he I don't know. I kind of got a vibe from like seven. He like, didn't seem like he was. That is true. That's a good. Because he gives him water at one point. He doesn't seem to be completely decayed. He, like, yeah, it's like there's a fleshy body there. I, I think he's a, like still somehow alive and being like tortured forever, you know, chained to this thing and yeah. being barely kept alive or something. Because, all right. Yeah. Arrow is clearly nuts, and just right. because he says he's going to bring him water... kind of had, like, a psycho feel to it, too. Yeah, I mean, just because he says he's going to bring him water doesn't mean that he's actually alive to right. ha- to drink the water, but I just kind of took that to mean that he was alive. Like, why? I don't know. Yeah. But, I don't know what... Because when he was talking to... I, I kind of, like I said, I kind of took, like, the psycho thing away from it that he, like, talks to his dad's corpse in a Norman Bates-type way. But yeah, I can, it's very possible. I, I don't know. I can definitely see it. What you the narrative you just presented though too. I yeah. I just got that vibe from you know the sloth sin yeah. in seven that it was just this got horrible. That part thing. is horrifying in yeah. seven, and it eventually leads to Cole chasing him through this maze of tunnels that are half buried in the tall grass southern delta yeah, landscape. This is quite the. Uh landscape that's going on out here i don't know it's like old it, foundation of something that yeah, they're like going it through. seems like there was some kind of a building there which i mean this might be a stretch but i kind of see that as the implication that 
this family and possibly this cult, this thing has existed for a long time. Meaning, yeah. like, they've owned this property for a long time. It's possible that whatever whatever was there has some long history within this Childress slash Tuttle family tree that that could have been an old hospital or school or some big building that, you know, a hundred years ago was somehow a part of this all too. Yeah. And this is just the remains of, you know, after a long time, you know, of it being torn down or falling down or whatever. Who knows? Right. But, like, it kind of just is, like, it speaks to, like, the roots that this has in this area. Um, now, Cole is pursuing him on his own. Marty is back at the house trying to subdue the half-retarded sister-lover <laughs> chick. Yeah. Right. Um, well, because it's like they're separate. Because that's important because they get separated. Yeah, and Cole follows him. It's clear that Childress is luring him into this place, right? Because he knows it. It's basically like I said. It's basically a maze of tunnels. Like you don't really know where you're going. Um, it's filled with all of the iconography that we've seen throughout, with the symbols and the twigs and the antlers and the tree branches. It's just like. A lot of stuff is in there that couldn't have gotten in there naturally, so they've definitely spent some time decorating this <laughs> massive yeah. thing. At one point, you know, because Childress is calling out to Cole, taunting him, saying different things. I think at one point he says to him, you're in Carcosa now. Um, I, I would assume most people would take that literally, like that this place, this maze is Carcosa, but like... I don't think that that makes enough sense. And I think he's talking about like a state of mind. Right. Like more of or, the mental yeah. thing because is that what that old housekeeper was talking about? Was a maze of tunnels? Yeah, I don't think is so. Although what, it did seem possible to me that, that like this may be, have been a place where they did perform rituals. Well, yeah. So, yeah. But I don't think that's what everyone's been talking about when they say when Carcosa. Because right. that seems way too literal. Yeah. Like, it's this horrible, evil place that's a physical location that you can just walk into. Like, I just, I'm, I don't completely buy that. I don't, right. Because no. I think Ledoux yeah. says something to him as in, like, you're, I think Ledoux may have said you're in Carcosa now. Or, or you're, you're going about to be in Carcosa. Yeah. And I, going, yeah. I, is he talking about a literal place? I don't. I don't or think you'll be so. in Carcosa. I almost think he's alluding to it's something that's going to happen soon, not like it's happening right then, but to Cole. Well, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I mean, I don't think he means like, because that would mean that Cole had found this other guy. And I don't right. think he's saying, I don't think he's about to be like, oh, you're, you've about you found us out. Let me tell you about <laughs> Errol Childress yeah. in this other place. I, I think they think of it as like this, and this goes back to the psychosphere thing. They think of it as like this bad state of emotion, like right. this bad atmosphere, whatever, this fucked up world vision that they have. And I think that's yeah. what Carcosa is. I don't think it's a physical place. Right. And I don't think the Yellow King is a physical person. Probably not. But... but- Somebody killed Dora Lang, and right. it was this asshole, yeah. so <laughs> they got to take care of it. Um, you know, they have their final showdown. 
Uh, Although it could be Carcosa to this dude. Yeah, but as you said, yeah, you know, may not be the most right. respected member yeah. of this group. I don't totally. know if he's making all the yeah, final yeah, decisions. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, he just seems to have his own delusions about what it's very possible the rules of too the that there's a fluidity to these definitions yeah. to them. Carcosa could be a physical place while at the same time being a state of mind. Right. That's what while I was thinking. the Yellow King could be a, like a something that anybody could be in a given moment or a yellow king in a specific ceremony or yeah. yellow, whatever like there could be that's the thing like we don't know and it's never really explained and i think people often want things explained to them when they're watching a tv show and i think that's where some of the disappointment in this last episode comes from is people expected to know for sure in concrete who is the yellow king what is carcosa who are all the people involved in this they all need to be brought to justice or they all need to get away but we need to all we but as viewers we need to know them all for sure we need to know every single thing that has gone into this and you know we're left kind of not knowing very much more than we knew going into the last episode yeah so cole you know the always you know be ready for anything of course childress gets the drop on him (laughs) well he (laughs) you know something that we didn't spend a ton of time on is like cole has kind of a psychic mysticism where he sees visions and yeah well for whatever reason he sees a vision right in the moment before tracking down Childress, he stares up at the ceiling and sees that galaxy yeah. of stars. And there's some weird connection with like his dead daughter or something, and he looks up at it, and then that's the moment Childress runs out and stabs him in the stomach. Right. And lifts him off the ground. Yes. Via that stab. And somehow, you know, Cole gets enough energy to headbutt him a bunch of times to knock him down and let's be clear I right. mean, childress is a huge guy yeah and it just the amount of bullshit that cole ends up surviving here is just insane yeah I mean, it doesn't really make any sense there's no way like he would cut, survive this yeah he is like gutted and marty is like so far away i mean he's started to make his trek there but he gets it through the maze Somehow, a lot quicker than what seemingly it took Cole. I mean, I guess he's moving at a quicker pace because he's sort of chasing, but because Cole's kind of been yelling back to him, right? As he, yeah, and he and Childress, what does he throw at Marty? Like an, a throwing like axe or something, isn't it? Something like he, like Marty takes something right to the sternum, which yeah. doesn't go in deep. I mean, I'm assuming it hit like the bone or whatever, chest, but like. Yeah. He's about to be killed. Yeah. And then that's when uh, Cole blows the top of Childress's head off with a fatal shot. Yeah. That kind of ends the whole deal. Now, this is like, this part is kind of crazy to me because they've already had a scene where Marty talks to, I think, Gilbro. I don't know. I can't really tell. Oh, yeah. They cut a deal with one of the cops and said that they're going to go out there. They're like, do you, well, they don't really. Uh, he yeah. doesn't tell him. Do you specifically, want the call? But he's like, do you want the call? Like, 
and he says yes and then and they do show up but like this is the type of thing that like only works on tv oh it's yeah like these guys aren't cops they showed up at this house they end up killing this guy and obviously we know as viewers that they're the good guys and blah 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 but right. it's like <laughs> they don't really have any reason right to be, to be doing yeah. this um uh and also it's just like the wounds that uh cole suffers are horrible and it just seems like it would take the police so long to find them yeah i, I mean, mean the whole thing is the whole he, ending he should is have a bled out neat. like four times over yeah, they're in, they're not like not only are they in the middle of nowhere just at this house, but then they're in the middle of this maze thing in a field behind the house. Right. I mean, they are just like I, it may have made more sense to have at least Cole die here because yeah. it just was like how in the world would he survive this? I don't know. Um and then, you know, they have like their hospital scenes um just quickly run through this. Uh, Marty's family shows up. Yeah, yeah, it's like his nice moment. Yeah, where he weeps in front of them, I guess, which is you know a sign that he's not a such a bad guy right. after all. Even Audrey's there. <laughs> Cole manages to recover. We hear a clip on the news discrediting any rumor that this Childress guy who murdered Dora Lang was connected to the Tuttles connected to the Tuttles in any way Cole you know recounts how he almost died and went into the black and he wanted to be there and he felt his daughter and his father and people there and it's kind of really sappy and unnecessary um (laughs) (laughs) and ultimately but it's it is fun having him and Marty together at the end yeah with their weird relationship and then finally, we get no final explanation of any of those things. The Yellow King, Carcosa, right. the Tuttle family sprawl, any of it. Yeah. Um, we kind of get some cool haunting shots of a lot of the places from the show. The original trees out in the field where Dora Lang was found. And, you know, I think um, the trailer where they kill Ledoux and then, you know, the place at the end and like everything kind of like you know just kind of cool looking shots of those places yeah now now that they're just you know ghostly reminders of what's happened there right and that's you know pretty much it yeah Um, is there uh, any chance of a reconciliation for marty with and maggie maggie is remarried so i don't think so but i mean it's kind of implied in an earlier scene where Marty goes to see Maggie that he hasn't really even seen like his daughters very yeah. much recently. So I guess the hope would be that maybe he could they can get that reconnect going again. a little bit. Right. So we've we've talked, you know at length plenty about this show. Yeah. But before we go, I wanted to throw out some crazy theories that I found out there. Um there's a million of them. I just briefly jotted down a couple. Right. Some of them are more fleshed out than others. I didn't really take the time to really, you know, get into too many of them. Because most of them, it's kind of like if you've ever seen that um, Room 237 about the Shining theories. It's just insane. (laughs) Some of these are so dumb that you're just, I don't know. I, I don't even know why, like, 
different silly websites would even dignify them by putting them in a list of crazy theories but right, they're but just so terrible here we go one and you know some of these theories were very popular before like the last couple episodes or the last episode so like clearly a lot of them proved not to be legitimate but in the moment that they were created maybe held a little bit more weight because we didn't know where it was going yet right uh, the first one I wrote down was the Fight Club theory, which basically amounts to Rust and Cole being the same person. Um, hmm. One of their, but I I wrote this down because one of their funny pieces of evidence that they used <laughs> was that uh, in that scene after uh, the double date at the bar, I believe in episode three. Um, when Marty is there with Maggie and they try to introduce Cole to a friend and uh, Marty sees Lisa there with another guy and he ends up speeding over to her apartment. Yeah. He apparently, I don't remember this for sure, but apparently he runs over a tricycle um, when he's pulling up to her apart, her like duplex place (laughs) and... So Somehow this connects his daughter. with Rust's daughter was yeah. hit by a car. Well, she was riding a tricycle, right? And was yeah. riding a tricycle. Yeah, I don't see how it would. I don't even know why that necessarily means they're the same person. But no. apparently this was <laughs> and, evidence uh, enough. Or how Maggie would break up her marriage by fucking this yeah. one dude. <laughs> Obviously that's not real. Right. Um, because... The trick to something like that, whether it's the Fight Club or if you want to say like Sixth Sense or something where a character is not real or not right. alive or whatever, is that you have to be able to go back through and the be like, entire oh, yeah. thing and then realize that no one talked directly to this person or whatever. But it's like they, Gilbro and Papania were interviewing two different people and asking about another person. Yes, right. It's like, come on. All right, moving on. <sighs> Audrey... Is it Audrey or Aubrey? I don't know. Do we really need two thing? different names? What do you mean? <laughs> Just us existing as human beings. Do we need to have an Audrey and an Aubrey? <laughs> I believe it's Audrey. Yeah, I would hope, considering I've referred to as Audrey, her as Audrey the whole time. <laughs> well, that's why I thought it was. <laughs> Just because I've heard you keep saying it. Well, for some reason, when I wrote this down, I wrote Aubrey. Oh, boy. <laughs> I think it was Audrey. Yeah was a victim of the serial killer in 2012, but Hart didn't know it yet during his interview. They cite kind of, you know, the evidence that we talked about at the beginning of this episode. Plus, at one point, there's a cartoon that the girls are watching of a wolf attacking a sheep, which I guess is, you know, some kind of symbolism there. (laughs) And, you know, Hart is unaware because of his, you know, distant relationship with his daughters during 2012 obviously this didn't turn out to be true i think it was an i think that's an interesting theory and you know would have been fun to get into you know before the last episode but obviously not real yeah um obviously uh there are definitely plenty of theories for um both Marty or Rust being the killer, being involved, whatever, being a part of the cult. Yeah. Um, the Rust one, obviously, I I believe was debunked fairly early whenever 
Gilbro and Papania implicate or you know imply that they are looking into Cole as the killer. I think right. as soon as that happened, yeah. you're like, well, that's clearly not the case. Then. Right. <laughs> but the Marty one is a little bit funnier and more interesting. Um, the biggest piece of evidence is that he didn't kill Ledoux because of finding the children. He killed Ledoux to shut him up. Oh, yeah. Um, that could have been fun. Also... That would have definitely been a twist. <laughs> there's a funny picture that they use, too. Uh, it's a scene of Marty and Maggie in the bedroom. I believe it's after the drawings incident with Audrey. And Marty is in like a tank top and boxer shorts on the bed. And his back is to the camera. And he's kind of putting his hands up in kind of an exasperated way. But they're above his head almost like antlers. <laughs> Like it's almost oh. like he's putting them, you know, yeah, up to yeah. imitate like moose antlers or oh, something. Right. But he's Jägermeister. He's clearly putting his hands up in an exasperated kind of way. Yeah. But they took this freeze frame as like a sign that you know he's doing the antlers or something. <laughs> um, and that you know just obviously speaks to like the lengths to which people will go for their own crazy theories right. like the fact they would take a freeze an innocuous freeze frame and turn it into some kind of thing <laughs> my favorite though and this will be the last one and i ha- i didn't even bother to get into the evidence of it because it's so beyond silly but and basically racist um that the there was a pretty popular theory i think it may have originated on reddit or somewhere that the King in Yellow is actually the owner of the Vietnamese restaurant from episode three that they stop at. (laughs) (laughs) And it has to do with Cole's father being in Vietnam and Cole mentioning some atrocities that happened there and (laughs) that Cole's father participated in them and this has all been an an insane revenge plot. (laughs) (laughs) What a way to get revenge. (laughs) Yeah, I just I I just was like blown away by someone thinking like yeah, a major television show on HBO will have a have something called the King in Yellow and it'll be basically a racist yeah. thing about a Vietnamese person. It's just like what? No kidding. <laughs> like obviously, like satanic ritualistic murder is one thing, but yeah, like, just out and out racism. No kidding, there's no place for it. Yeah, <laughs> get it out of here. Yeah, um, and obviously, you know, you can look into these theories for yourself. I don't really think any of them are necessarily. I mean, obviously, the show's over now, so people have different theories based on right, all right, eight right. episodes. But these, I, I wanted to find kind of ones that were out there before the show was completed because i i just remember leading up to those last couple episodes like reading into these things i couldn't even necessarily find any that i remembered reading from before while the show was running like but you know it, it just was a crazy time and i definitely think it it for the people that were watching it it definitely like uh, capture people's imaginations in a way that most shows don't. Right. Um, so anyway. Yeah. Uh, that was True Detective season one. Yeah. The three part series is over. Um, did you 
We've definitely probably gone long enough. Yeah. But did you have anything to say about season two? Well, I mean, yeah. The only thing that... It's funny now because it's like with time away from it, I sometimes think I want to like go back in my head and be like, well, maybe season two wasn't that bad. And then I start thinking about like the stuff that happened in it and especially like the way it ended and everything. And I was just like, no, it just really wasn't. I think like there could have there was some stuff there, but like the whole story was just like so convoluted and like it really was hard to care about what was even happening at the end. I think, and, you know, I, I, I read um, something with Pizzolatto doing an interview with uh, TV critic Alan Sepinwall, and oh, yeah. um, he was talk. He, he kind of was like, it was after season one ended and before season two probably even started, like, filming in earnest or anything like that, but he was... He kind of was like, oh, it'll be about, like, the corruption and blah, blah, blah in, like, the transportation system. I don't, I don't know. It was some ridiculous thing. Yeah. And I was like, in retrospect well, now, sounds less interesting. <laughs> reading a quote like that, it's clear that, like, even Pizzolatto, like, didn't quite grasp, like, what the hook of this show really is. Right. And the hook of this show is probably depressingly simple for some to somebody like him yeah it's clear that people just get invested in shows where a girl is murdered at the beginning (laughs) in a weird way yeah i mean clearly it can't just be a regular murder or else you're talking like at law and order or like you know csi or whatever it like it has to be interesting and different and weird and Yes, the conspiracy and, like, all this stuff, like, the cult angle and all this shit, like, added to it. And obviously having top-notch actors and cool cinematography and a a good director and everything added to it. But, like, at its simplest thing, it's like... Because you had good actors in season two. You had cool cinematography. Everything looked cool. Um the ingredients were right but like nobody cared about that story right nobody cared from the first minute yeah, it started until the minute the very ended. end like the like the whole thing with the ending with uh like rachel mcadams vince vaughn's wife and like one of vince vaughn's like uh henchman dude all kind of like having this little crew like in like south america or something wherever they are like i don't know it just felt so dumb that that was like the end of the well show. it fit the rest of the season yeah because it was dumb yeah i mean because at the be- like at the heart of season two was a murder that kind of kicked everything off but it was a some scummy unlikable degenerate probably evil guy yeah that got killed that kind of the whole point of it was like it it potentially exposed all this other stuff that had to do with it but right. like the murder at the heart of the story, nobody cared. Yeah. It was like, this is the type of person that should be murdered. Yeah. This is the type of person who gets murdered. Yeah, and I mean, the web that spun from it, I mean, it was so hard to really, like, connect why. It was even more, it was way more complicated than season one. Oh, yeah. And the payoff was zero. Like, right. Whereas season one, you're like, 
I understand the threat here. There is a cult, and it's murdering children and women, young people. Even if you know some of the women might be prostitutes, they're probably more or less innocent in society's eyes Although, compared to somebody yeah. in se- in season two, where it's just like evil I, people doing evil shit to each other. I will is say not this though: it's like we're when we were watching season two, like as it was going, and I can remember listening to uh, uh, Andy Greenwald and oh Chris Ryan's podcast, and like you know they were trashing it, you know, pretty early as you know we were but i just remember listening to them talk about it though and this is like one of the things i want to talk about like with the anthology series like i don't know be like after like four episodes of the show they'd be talking about like oh well is this it for true detective is this are they just gonna like cancel it after this and but in my mind i was like well isn't the idea of like an anthology series like even if this this season's not good next season's gonna be something completely different i don't know but i I mean, obviously, real life seems closer to what they were talking about because it does seem like after that, the future well, of it become, became very questionable. But I was just like, well, can't why wouldn't there just be like a third season with a new cast and a new story <laughs> that well, could be good again? Well, it gets a little more complicated with this show as compared to maybe like American Because of how much money it costs? Horror story. Yeah, the money, but also this show has one writer and one showrunner and it's like right. other shows like American Horror Story it's like yeah they have like a showrunner but there's a lot of writers there's a lot there's probably way more like network involvement um and the stakes are obviously different and it's really all they need to worry about on FX is like are the ratings good enough to still sell the advertising time that we're looking to sell Whereas HBO, it's their equations for whether or not they keep doing a show are a lot different and a lot more secretive. They don't necessarily have to worry about ratings in the same way. Um, I don't even know if they necessarily always make their ratings public. I don't know if they have to. Um, I don't really know how that works with like their shareholders and whatnot. But like, yeah. So no one really knows what goes into their thinking. If if they think that the True Detective brand has been irreparably damaged from season yeah, I guess, two, they yeah. might decide not to do it. Because I would still have hope for like a cool third season, even though I didn't like season two. I still I yeah, don't know. I, in and my I think mind, there's was... been rumblings of a potential season three. I think one of the mistakes was they needed more time. Yeah. Especially if one person craft, is writing like, the entire thing. Yeah, and just to craft a, a story that's going to hold up to to season one. And I get it. And there there's comparison. There's an easy comparison to um, the podcast serial between seasons one and oh, two. Oh, yeah. Where I think the gut reaction for people is, you know, the creators of you know, true detective and creators of serial is we got to do something completely different for season two. It can't be the same thing. Yeah. And I get that. And from an artistic standpoint, that's admirable, but you're opening yourself up to a lot of disappointment from your fans because I think 
you can do that successfully, but it's a lot trickier. And as we've seen with those two things, it, people the more really likely <laughs> scenario is that people aren't going to be as interested. They they expect some one thing, and then you give them something else, and it's it'd be one thing if True Detective season two was like some unappreciated work of genius that was only shit on because it wasn't the same thing as season one when ultimately you you could show somebody season two because it's not a continuation of season one if they hadn't seen season one and they're not going to like it it's just not good right i mean it's hard to understand and ultimately the only reason you would even watch all eight episodes is because you would watch season one and you were still working off of the goodwill generated right, from season right. one, which is the only reason I kept watching it. Yeah. If that had been season one, I would have been like, I'm, I'm not watching this. This is terrible. Well, and plus, there's not always stuff to do on Sunday nights. <laughs> well, I checked out pretty early on vinyl. I was oh, like, yeah, I'm done. That, yeah. I mean, and that was a show I had, you know, really high hopes for. And yeah, that should have been great and was awful. Right. And that's how I felt about season two, but I kept with it because of season one. Yeah. And I kept thinking, well, maybe the turn, every episode, I I had like that kind of same feeling of, well, maybe this is where it turns and gets good. Yeah. And it seemed to just go farther and farther off the rails. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, But yeah, that having said that, I also would probably you know be interested in season three well yeah it's something fun to monitor i mean even like when they were going into season two it's like just announcing the casting like colin farrell vince vaughn rachel mccann like it would be fun to go through that again like (laughs) go i don't know because you know they try to get movie i know you were waiting for a call from your agent oh absolutely see if you were gonna get in there but well yeah i mean they'd probably based on you know how season two went they'd probably have to resort to hiring like me to be the fourth build person on it yeah i don't know i think mcconaughey is still involved in a producer kind of role um and i mean i i might be just completely making this up but i feel like him and pizzolato were you know discussing they were putting it out there that there was some kind of a desire to still do a season three i don't think it's as far as i know it's not like it's been officially canceled or anything yeah uh, unlike final or other shows um (laughs) like luck i don't know what's another (laughs) hbo show that was canceled uh um <laughs> hopefully any given wednesday oh. uh, <laughs> um so after the thrones i would i would i would say that like you know there's still a good chance it'll happen at some point they they just might think it's a better idea to wait and like you know if three years from now they're like oh yeah it's coming back I mean, yeah I think, that's the thing I think I, people yeah would be pumped yeah. i mean i don't think HBO's always done things their own way. That's true. The Sopranos were like one of the first shows I even remember who took like two years in oh, between yeah. seasons right. sometimes or whatever. So, I mean, I'm sure, you know, it's always a possibility that it's coming back. I'm, you know, whatever. Looking forward to uh, right. Westworld yeah. starting. Well, if it comes back, we're certainly not going to talk about it on this podcast. So No more three-part yeah. series, probably, unless something changes in our lives (laughs) yeah i can't i can't imagine a scenario where we would do this again but 
You never know. Yeah, because I think the material of the show is worthy of three episodes. Oh, it's absolutely. Just, we're, just the on-air talent, really. <laughs> yeah, our like, own sad ADD. We were just like, by the time we were into that second one, I was like, I can't believe we're doing another one on this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but we got... You know, let's keep the excitement up. We got October <laughs> coming around the corner. Yeah, so it's gonna be a real milestone stretch for us. We're not gonna, you know, keeping with what we always do on the show. We're not gonna really say exactly when the next episode is gonna come, but <laughs> that protects it us. Could, it could come at any time. Yeah. You don't even know what the subject matter is gonna be. Right. Neither do we, really. No, but <laughs> we got. In fact, sometimes there's some real panic, and we change at the last minute. Yeah, which seemingly we're probably going to have to do. <laughs> but, um, you know, get ready for October. It's coming. The big greatest moments in the history of forever. Celebration of horror. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what we're calling it. Whatever. <laughs> Follow the show on Twitter, at Greatest Pod. Check out our old episodes at right. greatestmoments.podbean.com. All 36 Including Bug Juice, Wonder Years, yes, Silence of the Lambs, some of the greatest Under the ones. Skin, Adventureland, <laughs> Under the Skin, Havoc, yep, I don't know, Halloween Three, whatever, yeah, get get yourself ready for the horror month by going to greatestmoments.podme.com, listening to our classic Halloween Three episode, which is a shame because that would be a great one for us to do in October now. <laughs> And uh, we'll uh, see you next time. Thanks for listening.